In today's Burning Archive, I'm going to continue my account of the various environments in which civilization has emerged and prospered in Felipe Fernandez Amisto's account in Civilizations from 2000. And a big thank you and acknowledgement to Professor Felipe Fernandez Amisto for providing such um, wonderfully written and uh, marvellously imaginative histories of so many civilizations in that great, great book. So, in the previous episode, 56, I looked at wastelands of desert, tundra, and ice, looking at the Sami and of, of uh, sort of northern Scandinavia and uh, northern Eurasia, and the grasslands, where I looked a little bit more at the steppe and the Scythian. Civilization from around about 900 to 200 BC, and I also looked at tropical lowlands and post glacial forests under the rain, where I looked at the uh, city of Benin in Africa, where a great walled city of mud walls was built. And today I'm going to be looking at fields of mud, which is alluvial soils in drying climates or the original concept I guess of uh, a cradle of civilization in Mesopotamia. Mirrors of sky which is the highlands when where we'll look in a little bit more depth at Mesoamerica, the Andes and the Inca and water margins which is sort of seashore coastal civilizations rather like the Australian civilization clinging on the coasts of uh, this continent and there I'm going to look at the Javanese and Srivijaya uh, civilizations from I guess what we would think of as the kind of medieval renaissance sort of period of um, uh, Southeast Asia and Finally, I'm going to look at breaking the waves, the domestication of the oceans. And I'm going to look at that strangest civilization of all, the one that grew up around the Atlantic Ocean, which we sometimes think of as Atlantic civilization or Anglo-American or the West. So that's the outline uh, for today. And I've just a reminder to anyone who's coming to this episode sort of fresh, this is the third in a little mini-series discussing the presentation of ideas of history in the game Civilization and uh, responding to a question from Isaac Rich about what is a cradle of civilization. And in the first episode, I sort of talked broadly about what that answer was and general concepts of civilization. And now I'm going through the wonderful book by Felipe Fernandez Amesto that looks at how civilization is a way of adapting environments or nature to human needs and uh, has occurred in every habitable place on earth and in no particular form or no particular template or model or or uh, preferred pathway 
Okay, so let's get into Fields of Mud, the alluvial soils of drying climates. And it's here where so much discussion uh, about the beginning of history, the beginning of civilization, uh, in traditional accounts that we will have all absorbed more or less. This is where it begins, in Mesopotamia, in Southwest Asia, in the region of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which certainly in like the third or fourth uh, millennium BC apparently were a little bit more moist uh, than they are today, you know, a little bit more swampland, um, but with these uh, big rivers that would flood and spill fertile mud all over the surrounding plains. And it was in that uh, the mud of these flood fl- uh, flooding rivers uh, that uh, civilization, let's call it, emerged, uh, or a particular set of civilizations emerged in around about the fourth millennium BC, so about three thousand plus BC. It used the mud of the rivers to make enormous cities with monumental architecture. And it established a particular form of agriculture using the mud of these rivers, planting grains in and irrigating them and uh, establishing really a form of mass production of uh, grains that would support a sophisticated and structured elite. But as uh, Fernandez Amisto says, this is a particular choice of agriculture that was being made in this Sumerian or Akkadian civilization, the civilization of a number of cities that we'll talk about. And he says, he says it's important, and this goes to the whole question of cradles of civilization. So civilization did not originate in quote marks, on alluvial soils, though they may have helped it along. Neither did agriculture. But this, because the thing is, agriculture also developed even earlier in Papua New Guinea, I believe, maybe Peru as well, and a few other places as well. But this type of environment did breed a particular kind of agriculture, which in turn fed a particular kind of civilization a form of agrarian mass production specialising in one or two staple grains, cutting the land with flood channels and irrigation canals, scoring the landscape and smothering it uh, with crops which were unnatural in the sense they could not have evolved and could not survive without humans. This was a kind of agriculture which represented an extreme form of civilizing urge. It supported teeming, urbanized, highly regulated societies. Human hives, the tyranny of collective objectives. This uh, form of agriculture had a somewhat vexed relationship with the environment around it. It was always a little bit of a fragile environment. This part of Southwest Asia, and that was that's part of the story about from Cunliffe about why agriculture spreads out from the southwest core. It's because of some of the environmental degradation from the agri- agriculture that leads people to go off and look for better 
better climates and better uh, environments, micro-niches. But it was also a type of uh, society, type of civilization, that consumed enormous resources, which it actually drew from surrounding cultures, or let's call them civilizations, on the steppe uh, and on the Iranian plateau and other areas. So it was very much not a self-sufficient civilization or a the the dominating resource center of the entire of Eurasia it was a particular kind of resource consuming uh, civilization state that emerged in this area but already back in that you know third fourth millennium BC was having a had all sorts of trading and other sort of relationships with uh, the steppe and other parts of Eurasia. But uh, this uh, Sumerian, S-U-M-E-R-I-A-N, Sumerian civilization, did evolve and left some utterly stunning uh, pieces of uh, cultural heritage, I guess, over the period roughly from 3000 to 1500 BC, this Sumerian a civilization sort of went through various waves of centralizing dynastic states and then a bit of a break up into smaller, uh, more anarchic uh, circumstances. And there were uh, power, I guess, moved from one key city to another, whether that was Sumer or Ur, you are, or Akkad. And different dynasties and different periods of the time are known after those those cities. Um, Ur might be it's in the city Ur, may well certainly all those three cities: Ur, Sumer, Akkad, um, uh, Susa. Maybe also would be very familiar to any player of civilization because they do appear. But Ur also has an enduring cultural reference as the sort of like a beginning, like you say, the Ur text, or it is the first, the beginning text. And in that sense, Ur has become almost like a, a symbol, the cradle of civilization itself. These, this civilization built uh, enormous kind of pyramid type structures called ziggurats which were sort of like pyramids but more like steps and even in i think it's in the 2000 bc era the akkadian under the akkadian dynasty it's also where persian carpets or woven carpets from this area are first referenced in documents. Babylon was also a city in this area and in the early period it was the, by legend, was the place where the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were. But uh, Fernando Semesto thinks that it's quite likely that Hanging Gardens of Babylon was a kind of uh, second millennium BC fake news perpetrated by subsequent writers because there is apparently no evidence that it ever existed. King Hammurabi, who reigned around about 1765 BC, was is famous as the uh, writing the first known code of laws and also from the Sumerian 
uh, civilization, which largely wrote in, a, in with a kind of form of little triangle sort of shapes in clay tablets known as cuneiform. But it from this this uh, civilization comes uh, one of the earliest literary texts that we have, and that is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which in some ways might uh, has been seen to prefigure to some degree the story of the flood in the Bible and because the area around the Tigris and Euphrates flooded quite a lot and also is a bit of a foundation of heroic epics. It features a king called Gilgamesh who meets a wild man called Enkidu who has been created by the gods to stop the king oppressing the people of his city. But Enkidu and Gilgamesh sort of have a test of strength, uh, which Gilgamesh wins, and they end up going on a bit of a road trip to the cedar forest of kind of Lebanon, I think, where Enkidu sort of defies the gods, kills the bull of heaven, and is then sentenced to death. And in grief at the death of his friend, Gilgamesh then goes on a long journey to try to discover the secret of eternal life. Ultimately, he comes back to the city having learned that, and this is broadly what is said in the poem, in a translation, uh, or yeah, I guess it's a poem, an epic poem, life which you look for, you will never find. For when the gods created man, they let death be his share, and life withheld in their own hands. In other words, uh, you had to embrace uh, mortality. It's important to say about Sumer, and we'll come to this a little bit more in the next episode where we talk about the broad things, that it is... As uh, Fernando Zemesto stressed, it's not the only path to agriculture, and nor is agriculture diffused from this centre. Uh, agriculture emerges rather from a process, I think uh, anthropologists sort of these days call processual change, which is sort of like is a basic process involved. It's a bit like natural selection, I guess. There's a process involved in looking out and consuming plants that leads people ultimately to to this thing and the the uh, path to agriculture is uh, much more gradual and differently understood these days than perhaps when Sidmar invented uh, civilization uh, but it is worth noting that this civilization of Sumer and the Akkadian civilization Ur etc had enormous appetite for commodities and resources which it drew from the steppe and the surrounding mountainous districts the sort of mining areas that Barry Cunliffe uh, talks about which I think I mentioned in the first uh, show of this series on on civilizations and its internal conflicts its constant war etc made it what uh, Barry Cunliffe describes as a rabid consumer of commodities produced elsewhere. There is in fact a cuneiform text surviving from 1800 BC that describes the arrival of a single shipment of 20 tonnes of copper. 
but this heavy reliance on a, I guess, an international network of trade and resource extraction uh, from uh, other places really collapse collapses with internal strife as well around about 1600 BC. And then there's a long sort of Sumerian Dark Ages before a second Babylonian Empire uh, sort of emerges, as well as a whole lot of others like Hittites and others that you might have uh, read about over time. And from this period then, Barry Cunliffe says it's when we start to have the first clashes between nomads and empires as they are in conflict over the systems of Eurasia. It's also in uh, Fernandez Amesto's view very much an example of how great ambition uh, can reshape the environment but perhaps cannot always last. Fernandez Amesto begins his account of the highland civilizations, the civilizations set high in the mountains, whether on a plateau or steep slopes, with a quote from the English 18th century uh, author Samuel Johnston, the famous Dr. Johnston, who wrote an early dictionary of English. And it's a quote from his travel story of a journey to the Western Isles of Scotland. And he says, As mountaineers, by which he means people who live in mountains, not mountain climbers, as mountaineers are long before they are conquered, they are likewise long before they are civilised. And this quote really uh, represents a pretty common uh, stereotype, I guess, of uh, certainly the Scottish Highlanders has been, or you see uh, repetitions of this relatively uncivilised stereotype uh, from others in the way in which many Americans would discuss the Afghani tribes people in their uh, Highland fastnesses. So it's a pretty common stereotype of the highland civilizations being uh, madly defensive neurotically neurotic about their security and isolated and rather uh, lacking in the uh, luxuries and uh, whatnot of civilized life down in the lowlands but this is very much not uh, is very much a cliche and one that, of course, Fernandez Amesto helps us get beyond. Among the highland civilizations that are described by Fernandez Amesto are New Guinea, Zimbabwe, Ethiopia, Iran, Tibet, and of course, Mesoamerica, Mexico, and the Andes, the Aztecs and the Incas. And he really uh, identifies, I guess, three broad characteristics of these environments in their interaction with the civilization. First of all, I the thing about highlands is there's lowlands below. And so to some degree, 
The Highlands civilizations are very much defined partly by their relationship with the Lowlands civilization down below. And that is not necessarily a relationship of isolation or vulnerability. Sometimes the Highlands civilization is the dominant one. Uh, in terms of power and economy and uh, exploits and has a lot of uh, makes a lot of use of the lowland civilizations or lowland cultures let's call them the second thing is well you know it's a lot more there's a lot of security and defensibility about the positions in a mountain so there is not a sense of impregnability, but a strong a sense of security of some of these civilizations. And finally, the third big thing, and this is something that, given my rather poor knowledge of uh, the science of geography, I didn't really know before reading Felipe Fernandez Mesto's book, is as you climb the slopes of the uh, highlands, it gives it means there are lots of different little climates along the way and lots of little ecological niches so that as you uh, travel a relatively short distance you can actually encounter enormous diversity of resources and plant products and animal products, weather and uh, sort of ecological niches. So this is quite sustaining for many of these Highland civilizations. I guess perhaps amongst the most famous of Highland civilizations really are the Aztecs and the um, the Incas of uh, Mesoamerica and the Andes. And these two are broadly in different kinds of geographical setups. Mesoamerica is much more of a I think this is right. I think Mesoamerica is more of a high plateau whereas the Andes are sort of more a long, sloped, narrow strip with great uh, diversity, but quite a lot of uh, slope along the way. And this, to some degree, also shaped some of their different character and uh, qualities. Both the Aztecs and the Incas, which were both around when, you know, the Spanish conquistadors arrived uh, from... Uh, around about 1500 on, were actually relatively recent cultures, societies, civilizations. The Aztecs were a particularly aggressive sort of conquest state, uh, and the Incas had built a rather impressive centralized sort of empire in the Andes. But they were both uh, surrounded by ruined predecessor cultures. There had been multiple attempts before to found civilization or to build civilizations in these environments, some of which were magnificently successful and are described in uh, Fernandez Amesto's book, but all of which also ended up in ruin. And both the, the uh, military aggressiveness, I guess, of the Aztec state and the centralizing power of the Inca state created a lot of internal strife that was a contributing factor like to to weakness of those uh, societies encounter with the conquistadors but it's really uh, the Incas perhaps that 
most impress Fernandez Amesto in some ways, and that's partly because he says they were the most successful in civilising. If you look at all around the world in the early 16th century, the, he described the Inca Empire as the most successful in civilising the largest range of environments of any place on earth. So Fernandez Amesto says that the Andes form a long thin chain. The Inca Empire stretched along them over more than 30 degrees of latitude from east to west across their peaks. Rainfall and cloud cover are contorted into extremes of difference. The steepness of the mountains means that a great diversity of environments can be found concentrated in a small space. Between sea and snow, different echo zones are stacked as if in, a, as if in tiers, T-I-E-R-S. The Puna grasslands, which occupy altitudes of between about 12,000 and 15,000 feet, are broken up by intense patches of cultivable soils wherever the subsoils retain heat or moisture and these grasses also unlike in the Mexican uh, area supported the famous I guess South American domesticated animals the llama the alpaca and the vicuna the valleys in this area also tend to have less quality rainfall so it's less likely for those societies to organise irrigation. And the valley structure makes for an extraordinary range of microclimates and specialised biota to supplement the universal diet of potatoes, maize, beans, chilies, peanuts and sweet potatoes. Fernandez Mesto also has just a couple of observations on the nature of the worldview and how that differed very much between uh, the Incas and the Aztecs. He says of the Aztecs that the world vision reflected in Inca art is painfully, uncompromisingly abstract. Human and animal forms are spatchcocked and straightened by weavers and goldsmiths. An unyielding imagination is embodied in crushing architecture. The exactly dressed masonry in gigantic slabs, the unflinching symmetry, the exclusion of any bending or bowing or any gesture imitated from nature. There is less naturalistic art among the Inca than in Islam. Of course, Inca also had a form of knotted writing, which may have carried stories, but no one has ever been able to work that out. There was a fair bit of terror and a fair bit of human sacrifice in the Inca system as well. And I feel at some point I must do a special episode on either both, maybe even both the Incas and the Aztecs because they're, they're fascinating cultures that I'd like to know more about. And I always remember Inga Clendinen, who was a historian at Melbourne Uni, wrote a marvellous, marvellous book about the Aztecs. So I think I might return to that on another episode. But for now, I think we'll just mention that both the Inca and the Aztec resisted to some degree, and the Inca for quite a long time well into the 16th century and beyond, and their cultural memory is increasingly significant 
uh, or has been very, very significant to the various Latin American and Central American states of today. It would be interesting actually to just think about the use of some of these, let's call them unconventionally honoured civilizations in modern geopolitics. A thought for another day perhaps. Okay, now I'm going to talk about the next environment, which is the water margins or civilizations shaped by sea. And there have been some cases of civilizations or peoples who've made a habitat of the sea. Uh, in Fernandez of Mesto's book, he talks about the Oran Laut of Malaysia, who are a sort of a sea, uh, who, who make their life on the sea. And he also covers the experiences of, I guess, the Scandinavian Vikings, early Atlantic. North, Northwest Atlantic period, about 3000 BC, where there were uh, various cultures who sort of clung and developed around the uh, Atlantic coastline. And he also talks about Japan, Maritime, Arabia, Southeast Asia, the west coast of India, Gujarat and Fukien, which is like on the South China Sea. But in general, he says the the thing about the sea is it can be both life-threatening and life-supplying. It is not an easy place to make habitat lone sailors and all that kind of thing but where the sea and land meet with harbours rivers opening up into a navigable hinterland they do offer civilizations the benefit of a diverse environment where the sea can be a source of food a highway of trade and a means mansion so the seaboard civilizations that he discusses are really those where the sea is an additional resource for land-based communities or the sea is a highway of communication between them. These characteristics are important in shaping the experience of sea-bound civilizations and I guess for Australian listeners to the show you could sort of see the connections there with Australia very much a sea-bound a sea-board civilization on the whole most of its population cling to the coast in a few major port cities that are connected to resource-rich hinterlands then the sea certainly in Uh, The 19th century, now I guess the airways and the Ethernet um, offer communication routes to a broader world. And often these seaboard civilizations are oriented to commerce, to trade, to merchants. And their character is often defined not only by the sea, but their relationship with a complex hinterland. And there have been uh, many splendid histories of, I guess, sea 
histories of different seas and oceans. Uh, it's become a whole genre in in history these times. In part, in these times, partly inspired by the great Ferdinand Brodel's work on the civilization of the Mediterranean in. Uh, Philip II, he was a great French uh, historian who looked at long duet or sort of long-term patterns of social and economic uh, relationships and how they formed uh, some underlying ways of life that would often transcend particular national or religious or ethnic identities and bind uh, the Mediterranean into a common culture of sorts or at least an exchangeable culture of sorts that uh, help people together. And a similar thing could be said about the Viking civilization, like based not around the Mediterranean but around the uh, Baltic Sea and then ultimately into the Mediterranean as well uh, and indeed the Black Sea. But um, if anyone is interested in the histories of seas, they should certainly con- uh, consult the magnificent book by uh, David Abu Lafia, The Boundless Sea, A Human History of the Oceans. I believe he might have also written a book. Oh, yes, he's written A Human History of the Mediterranean, The Great Sea. So seas are very much his thing. And this uh, book... The Boundless Sea is from, when are we, 2020, I oh know, 2019. And totally marvellous book. It covers the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic, the Pacific, and then the process for all those oceans binding themselves together. Of all the seaboard civilizations, the one that I would focus on a little bit, less well-known but quite magnificent and mysterious in other ways, is the civilization of Sri Vijaya in uh, Sumatra. Sri Vijaya was a state or an empire or a, a sort of a trading network, a bit like Hanseatic League of the Baltic State Trading Networks, uh, that emerged in, it seems like, the 7th century and sort of seems to have continued strong until at least the 12th century AD. And it seemed to connect most of what we now call Indonesia, uh, the island of Sumatra and the island of Java, as well as most of the uh, sort of Malaysia, Malay archipelago. And it was a largely Buddhist empire or state or civilization that was is a little bit mysterious because uh, some of what is known about it is as is reported in the tales of travelers Chinese monks Arabian travelers and also uh, Chinese ambassadors who or, or or the the court in China that would report the appearance of various ambassadors from Sri Vijaya in this period. And there are not all that many remains, although there is apparently some quite recent archaeological research, uh, as in over the last 20 years, that is uncovering more and more of uh, the nature of this civilization. It was predominantly Buddhist and it reflected the uh, communication over the oceans and the seas of Buddhism from, and then later Hinduism and also Islam from uh, further up 
Eurasia, from India and, and China and so forth. And it was very much also at the nexus of the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. And it's at that crucial meeting point of the large trading network that this uh, civilization developed. As uh, Fernandez Amesto says, it's very much an example of the, the connection of a seaboard civilization to uh, highways of commerce and communication across the waters. It traded in sandalwood and frankincense, those sort of woods and uh, resins that are used for ceremonial religious observance, and was also a large source of fish turtles and other uh, traded commodities. But it was also in a, a, a culturally rich place that seemed to gather together people of different religions and many cultures and was something of a, I guess, a multicultural trading uh, empire there in Southeast Asia in what we would now uh, think of as the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, you know, before uh, somewhere between 600 and 1200 AD. It had a sophisticated court culture, uh, says uh, Fernandez Amesto, employing Hindu and Buddhist scholars and had a tradition of pagan magic for the propitiation and control of the sea. The Maharaja, in quotation marks, was said to have enchanted crocodiles to guard his river estuary and to buy the goodwill of the sea with annual gifts of gold brick. But the foundation of success of Sri Vijaya was really its, I guess, open trading network rather than a consolidated territorial empire. And it was a terrifically rich place. Its capital uh, was a place called Palambang, and uh, that featured this sort of large river that would go up into the sort of hinterland off off the coast and was the sort of, then uh, the city as such was sort of strung along this river, uh, not in a densely compacted way, but along sort of trading channels, so to speak. And recent archaeological research from shipwrecks and excavations in the area have really um, given a better sense of where, what, what exactly this city was because people had begun to doubt whether the reports were, you know, myths perpetrated by travellers or indeed real. But the excavations do show a, a kind of city that's not what is typically expected of a city. It's a city that's strung out along the long stretch of the river, a, a long strip city, so to speak. And uh, David Abalafio, who has the benefit of more recent research on Sri Vijaya, summarises it so. This then was a city on the water, a city with length but no breadth, whose raison d'etre was water traffic. It did begin to decline around about the 10th century, so its high point was the 7th to the 9th century, at which point rival powers in Java and Malaya, including the powers that built the magnificent Borobudur, reduced its influence. But it also changes your perception of what an empire or a, a strong 
great state can be. Abelufius says, rather than thinking of a centralised empire stretching over hundreds of islands and as far as the Malayan Peninsula, one should think of a commercial hub at Palembang a wealthy and militarily powerful city ruled by a widely respected king. And this was not an isolated place as well. Here in Palembang, archaeologists have discovered trade goods from as far away as Egypt, Arabia, Persia and India and include, uh, including, you know, ceramics, pottery, glass, precious stones, beads, coins, and huge, huge amounts of Chinese porcelain. So it was, Abulafia says, a political network generally dominated by Sri Vijaya, in which the Maharaja had to accept the autonomy of his neighbours, who for the most part recognised his general claim to be their sovereign, carried on as far as possible without, without allowing him to interfere and were perfectly prepared to challenge his authority at the first sign of weakness. So just as there are many different types of civilizations, there are many different kinds of empires. Srivijaya was a short-lived Southeast Asian empire built around a trading network along a great river on a crucial coast. And it's two coasts and oceans that we're going to turn next with the final environment that Felipe Fernandez Mesto discusses, which is oceans breaking the wave, the domestication of the ocean. Oceans, of course, are environments too, as we are only too tragically becoming aware with great islands of plastic everywhere congealing together as noxious islands somewhere in the Pacific. But oceans require ideas and technologies and fortunes to travel across and to make a life in. And yet, can they sustain civilizations? And as I said, Dave Abulafia has a magnificent study of the different ocean and the comings and goings of civilizations across those different oceans. In particular, I guess the Indian Ocean was perhaps the first, maybe, arguably, the first great ocean. Oceans also have a specific geography of position and define um, uh, environmental, geological uh, geographical constraints of wind patterns and currents that have an enormous and often unacknowledged impact on why some civilizations went uh, grew successfully and why some did not. Uh, the first great real ocean crossings were, I guess, um, the and extraordinary adventures of the uh, Polynesian navigators uh, across the Pacific, uh, which are superbly recounted in David Abulafia's uh, book, The Boundless Sea. 
and well worth a read and perhaps I might even do an episode of the podcast at some point on the the navigators of the Pacific including uh, I think his name was Tupaya who was the uh, Polynesian navigator who accompanied uh, James Cook on uh, various of his uh, adventures and they together mapped many parts of the Pacific and then of course there's the Indian Ocean which was for many millennia perhaps the most significant uh, ocean in which civilizations communicated uh, around the coasts with the travel and the trade um, between China and India and the uh, east coast of Africa and then of course there was the Atlantic Ocean which initially clung to its rather cold weather, wind-beaten shores in its early centuries, to finally break out from its western peninsulas of Europe to um, cross uh, the Atlantic and discover uh, a new, the Americas, uh, and to then forge this strange thing known as Atlantic or Western civilization. And I'm going to talk a bit, a little bit about that, uh, partly just quickly on the series of events that led Columbus to discover America, uh, and perhaps more importantly, to discover the uh, trade the wind uh, patterns and the current patterns um, uh, of the Atlantic and of Vasco da Gama to find a way around, you know, the sort of Africa, tip of Africa to India and back opened up centuries of trans-oceanic civilizational contact. And there have been many, many, many explanations um, proffered for the long-term consequences and dominance of this. But certainly in Felipe Fernandez Amesto's view, at least one part of that has to do with the strange environmental conditions of the oceans themselves. It was not just the peculiarly wonderful ideas of the peoples of Western Europe all the uniquely combative character forged in centuries of internal intracontinental conflict uh, of the peoples of Europe, all their, their spirit of adventure and truth-seeking based in Christianity that, that led them to, to this route. It was partly the peculiarities of the oceans itself. As Felipe Fernandez Amesto says, the Atlantic is a peculiar ocean and Atlantic side position, especially in Western Europe, confers advantages unattained elsewhere. Whereas the Indian Ocean is a sea where navigators look inward to within the monsoonal system and the sea lanes between the storm belts, the trade winds of the Atlantic reach out to the rest of the world. The route discovered by Columbus linked the densely populated middle band of Eurasia, which stretches from the eastern edge of the landmass to the shores of the Atlantic, with the environs of the great civilizations of the New World, 
which lay just beyond his reach on the other side of the ocean. The frustration of the Indian Ocean and the fulfilment of global ambitions in the Atlantic have to be explained in part with reference to the inescapable facts of geographical determinism, the tyranny of the winds. It took a long time for navigators to crack the Atlantic wind code, but once the task was accomplished, the winds drew them on towards other oceans and other cultures. And it's really this little process of cracking the code of the trade winds, the Atlantic, that was so conferred such advantage on what we know as the West or the Anglo-American world or the Atlantic civilization. The three voyages of Columbus, John Cabot and Vasco da Gama effectively cracked the code of the Atlantic wind system. Instead of an obstacle to the expansion of European peoples along its seaboard, the ocean became a means of access to previously unimaginable empires and trades. The European West was thrust beyond its historic confine. In the short term, the breakthrough of the 1490s made Atlantic civilization possible. Navigators now knew the routes of reliable, regular communication between the western shores of the old world and the eastern shores of the new. The Atlantic, which had been a barrier for the whole of recorded history, now became a link. This is a really crucial event and fundamental, I guess, to our understanding of the uh, last whatever, 500, 600 years. Um, and not not irrelevant, I guess, to a lot of what's going on here. We are seeing the, the conflict between the Atlantic world and Eurasia appearing again. And it opened up a fundamental process of passage of ideas, people, money, resources, plants, animals between Europe or Eurasia and America and Africa uh, that I guess defined Atlantic civilization, defined as much by the sort of tea trade between England, India and America as the slave trade between Africa, America and Europe as the growth and development of all the good things um, that we understand by Atlantic civilization under the term Western civilization, that very, very, very strange concept of Western civilization defined really, I guess, as the projection out of Western Europe onto America and then onto the rest of the world. But it's not the nature of the ideas of Western civilization that explain the unique advantage perhaps that those countries had at that time, at least not, not alone. It was this unusual access to favourable winds and currents of the Atlantic and uh, Atlantic Ocean. The fact that the Atlantic Ocean became, as Fernandez Amesto says, a highway to the rest of the world.
From the northwest edges of the ocean, its wind systems provided easy access to the great wind-borne thoroughfares that cross the world. Atlantic winds lead naturally to, to those of other oceans. But of course, the days of travel by uh, sea and uh, limitation by current in today's world of air travel and super powerful shipping uh, ships uh, sort of long gone. And the unique advantage that bred the Atlantic's civilization, the Atlantic Western civilization, is falling away. And perhaps also some of the bonds between the different parts of Western civilization are falling away. Towards the end of Felipe Fernandez Amesto's book written, I think in around about 2000, 2004, uh, he uh, discusses the potential breakup of the Atlantic world and refers to the bombing of Serbia in 1999 by NATO, referring to the years after the fall of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991. He writes that in the end, America beat the Soviet Union in what was in effect a competition in spending power, because only a capitalist economy could afford guns and butter. Meanwhile, however, America never felt secure enough to revert to isolation. The fortress in which the West withstood communism was sustained by the pillars of the Atlantic Alliance. Western Europeans grumblingly accepted in their own interests a role for the most for most of their territory as America's first line of defence, scattered with American bases, bristling with American weapons. Atlantic civilization huddled around the ocean for its defence. The last great age of Atlantic solidarity may appear, in hindsight, as a response to self-perceived weakness. And perhaps the level... Fernandez Amesto fought in early 2000s of European and American uh, cooperation uh, seemed to be weak. But the response of the NATO alliance to Serbia was, uh, in his view, rather poorly handled. The operations were so mismanaged and so counterproductive that they made the Europeans and Americans mutually wary and recriminatory. The Kosovo operation exacerbated the war, accelerated massacres and rewarded terrorists. It left a legacy of resentment among the innocent victims of NATO bombing in Serbia and Montenegro and a $100 billion cleanup. Though NATO propaganda tried to justify it as a war for civilization, it was really undertaken to save face. When the Atlantic Alliance finally breaks down and Western civilization is split by political schism, this thoughtless warmongering may be seen as one of the acts which deservedly condemned it, exposing its flaws, undermining its civilized credentials. And of course, as uh, you may be aware, Um, There has been a few references to those events in the current Indian summer of the Atlantic Alliance in 
the fight for civilization against Russia in Ukraine, where Europe and America, at least for a while, appear to be tighter than they ever have been before, and yet there is perhaps a legacy of deep, deep resentment and uh, a fissuring of the relationship that is being seeded. But I will come back to that theme in another episode because it seems to um, you know bring up the issue of whether the the west has come has passed its peak uh, whether we're about to see the fall of the west and hence to the broad story of the rise and fall of civilizations and it's to that theme that i'm going to turn in the fourth and final uh, part of this epic mini-series on civilizations in the next episode. Okay, so thank you so much for listening to my program. Uh, please share and subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. Tell your friends about the podcast. And I do hope that notwithstanding predictions of the fall of the West, you will keep yourselves safe and well and remember that what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. Bye now.